This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com Hey folks, very happy to be back here with my buddy Bill Evans. How you doing? Good, Jeff. How are you? Pretty good. The last time you were on Landmine Radio, I checked, was September 2019. But actually, it was we had a recording last week. That yeah, if you're going to count that, I don't know. We had a little bit of an audio problem, which which really bugged me because it was probably one of the best podcasts I've ever done. Oh, it was the best podcast. I mean, I've listened to your podcast. That was definitely the best, and it's a shame no one gets to hear it. So we're, we're going to redo it here. We had a little issue with the uh, new software of the studio, so... We've gone to the old software. Old school. That's kind of my dad always told me when I was growing up. He says, I'm a conservative because I only change when you have to. (laughs) Well, that was shown to be true last week. Yes. Um, So, folks, now you're running for mayor. And you filed, we discussed this before, I think you filed, uh, was it November? Uh, Early December. Okay, so that was after our podcast. Yeah, actually, during our last podcast, I think you even asked me if I was going to run, and I said no, because at that time, I really didn't think I was going to. I feel like I've maybe, you know, kind of inspired you. Well, yeah, if you want to believe that, sure. All right, so you're running for mayor. Now, that's not till April 2021, so yes, um, there's several other folks that have filed, but right now we have the kind of primary coming up in August, general November, so yeah. my kind of guess is the mayor, mayoral race really probably won't spin up until kind of early next year. Yeah, I think at least certainly until after the presidential election in November, nobody's going to be spending that much time. There's so much going on now with all that. We have 51 oh, legislative man. races. Um, some are uncontested, but then the, the U.S. Senate race, um, presidential, and then we have all these ballot initiatives. Protests, pandemics, all kind of things out there that distract from the, the real battle that is the mayor. The big, the big yes. fight. Uh, and then Ethan, he's termed out, so the, the, yep. there will be a new mayor. Yeah, one way or the other. So what I wanted to talk to you about... Unless and, he refuses and, to relinquish power, which you never know. I mean, you know, Bill Maher, I don't know if you watch Bill Maher, he's been saying for years, he, he does not believe Trump will leave. Okay. He's been saying that for years. And, you know, I, I think a lot of folks three years ago thought it was crazy, and now they're kind of like... Mm-hmm. It's easier to believe with uh, Trump than with uh, Ethan. I think Ethan will yeah. do the transition to power. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so the things I wanted to talk to you about, there's a lot going on now, and a lot of these kind of you have a direct um, connection to the police kind of defund the police stuff going on. You were a police officer. Yeah. Uh, back in the 80s, right? Uh, yeah, it was a while ago. So you were a police officer and you were in the military. Yep. So I want to talk about kind of a few things going on with the, the, the whole police brutality sure. since the George Floyd um, killing. So we, we discussed this last time, and, and what I had said was I totally acknowledge, you know, if, if, I'm, if you're a black person or, you know, brown person, you probably have a much harder go of it oh, in, yeah. in society, with especially okay. with police. And that being said, even I, as a guy, as a white kid who grew up in New Mexico, um, I just, and this is, it seems like it is maybe a societal thing in this country, because I've been to many other countries. Um, one, for example, which the police I've never had really great interactions with is Russia. So mm. <laughs> not a big fan of the Russian cops. But here it's like, we all have that feeling when, you know, there's a cop behind us, or if you see a police officer, you, 
I mean, most people, I think, generally just don't really like to engage or interact with police officers. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about why you think that is. I know there's a lot of people in this country have guns, so I'm, I'm sure if I was a, I, I've done ride-alongs before, and it's like every interaction, I did a Friday night ride-along years ago, and every interaction we had was negative. Yeah, it's very eye-opening. And it was Friday night, maybe worse than Tuesday afternoon, but, um, I mean, when you were a police officer, did you... Did you get that kind of vibe from people? They just didn't really, it was always an apprehension or nervousness. When, you know, yeah. we all know when the cops behind us, we started to get like, oh my God, what did I do? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's very seldom does anything really good come of having an interaction with the police. I mean, they're, if they're either pulling you over in your car and, you know, giving you a ticket or, or something like that, it's, it's, you know, they're not showing up and giving you ice cream or doing things like that. So most people's interactions with the police are generally going to be negative or they're going to be in, you know, times when they need them, perhaps they've called, they've got a problem, but it's going to be at a very, you know, traumatic and an emotional time for them. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's just natural that people's general view of the police is a bit apprehensive. Um, I don't know if you can get around that given the nature of what police do. They enforce the laws, they, you know, arrest people and give them tickets and all that kind of stuff. Uh, obviously, you know, for certain segments of society um, and certain minorities, that becomes even a bigger problem where the interactions are uh, much more them versus us, much more hostile seeming than, you know, for general white America. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's all understandable. And a lot of it goes back to, you know, the, the how police operate. Uh, as of, you know, when I was on the department, the one thing I learned was it, it's us versus them. And them was anybody who wasn't a police officer. Uh, everybody I socialized with, everybody I hung out with, they were all my fellow police officers. And you kind of get a jaded view of the world sometimes that, you know, everybody who's not wearing blue uh, is a just a problem for you. And I think that shows itself in how some interactions take place. I mean, I've seen that. I have a friend. I'll never forget this. Years ago, he 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 was a friend of a friend. He was a cop, and I, we knew he was a cop. I uh, we went went to dinner, and he would just uh, purposely kind of sat in the corner, and the whole time he was like, look, you know, head on a swivel. And at one point, I kind of said, "Hey, man, like, aren't you off duty?" He goes, "I'm never off duty." And I was like, "Oh man, like you've really like." The vibe got of that dinner got kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some cops that uh, kind of tend towards the more paranoid, um, and you know, some of it's understandable. I mean, you know, like you said, it's a it's a country that's just full of guns, and, and it's a we have a very violent country. You know, when I was in Australia, I, I met, I, met a, I was in Darwin. Mm-hmm. I met a cop, and he was I uh, was just chatting with him, and he was real friendly, and he had um, you know the whole deal and the gun and everything, and um, we were talking about kind of American policing. This is three years ago. And um, I asked him how long he was an officer for, and he said, oh, 15 years, you know, and he's <laughs> been there a long time. And I said, how many times have you pulled your gun out? He goes, zero. I go, you've never pulled your gun out? He goes, no, never. He's like, he's like, we don't worry about, you know, generally getting shot. Yeah, that's, you know, and that, the, which I took that as like a kind of a profound, because in Australia, I, I lived there almost a year, and, you know, you, there's fights and there's, you know, violence, and there's, there are some guns, not very many. There's knives, but... Generally, you just don't worry. Like I had a friend who was murdered outside of Platinum Jacks in 2012, yeah. gunshot. You know, so you, but in Australia and many other countries, you just don't worry about. It's not a thing. Like somebody's going to pull out if they're driving, road rage at the bar, the club. Oh yeah, it's, it's a different culture. We we do have a violent gun culture. You know, for better or worse. That's you know. We've seen those videos. People getting pulled over for a ticket. You know those dash cam videos, and oh, you know, yeah. next thing you know, they're shooting. Yeah. No, it's uh, at least in defense of the police, you have to be very 
careful in every interaction. You can't let your guard down if you want to go home that night because uh, you just never know if the person you're pulling over for speeding is just a regular citizen or it's somebody who's got, you know, tons of drugs in the car or has got a felony warrant out for him and doesn't want to go. You just don't know. Um, so, you, you know, the interactions are always going to be a little tense. I think the better police have ways of handling that that don't make it come across as being confrontational. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've got to get to a system where, you know, all the police have that attitude and are able well, to do that. I listened to, um, it was a podcast, I'm trying to think what it was, it was a few weeks ago, but they were talking about how, you know, we, we give, we have meter maids or people who, you know, mm-hmm. parking meter enforcement, you know, somebody's parked there, they get a ticket, uh, and they kind of said, why not for speeding? Why don't we, why does every speeding, you have to run the license, check the person, why not just give them the ticket without having to go through all the, and I, I guess, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I guess that's on one end, you're, you're getting the revenue, but maybe the person's a bad person and they, they, they're wanted. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing that says you have to run, you know, you usually have to run a license when you stop somebody just to verify that's who they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, traditionally you do it so that, you know, see if there's any warrants and make sure the car is not stolen. You check all that data out. Um, and that's when, you know, some of the problems can come up. Um, but, yeah, there doesn't have to be any, you know, interaction uh, that is an interrogatory or anything like that with them. You can just get their license, run it, make sure it's valid. You also have to check, make sure that's a valid license. Um, and then, you know, just write in their ticket and move along. So a lot of the conversation now is with this police brutality and they're, they're, they're just talking about more, more social workers and, and more um, kind of de-escalation. And I think it was, it was Bill Maher a few weeks ago. He was, he said, you know, like all these great ideas and then leave it to some people to call it defund the police, which, yeah. which is, is a horrible um, term. It just, you lose a lot of people who, who say, hey, we want more social workers, we want more uh, tools to de-escalate, we want more things to, to make interactions positive. But when you call it defund the police, I think you, you scare a lot of people. Because I don't know really anybody who seriously believes we shouldn't have police in society. Yeah, I think uh, you know, good marketing slogan gets your attention, and defund the police did that. I mean, it's gotten people talking about it, and and people know the phrase now, defund the police. So, you know, the next step is can you take that slogan with everybody's attention and turn it into something that's um, constructive um, and doable? Um, and I think you know, it's it goes from defund the police to reimagine the police because there's a lot can be done. Um, well, you know, we, reimagine sounds. Sounds better. It is, and I, and I think it'd be a very good thing. Or redefine, right? or, yeah, yeah, and because there's a lot of things like, for instance, you know, we we take for granted that uh, detectives have to be regular police officers, and given the job they do, it's not necessarily the case. You can have a in completely independent uh, homicide bureau that just focuses on the skills that homicide detectives need. That isn't basically just you know a promotion from the police department. And, you know, things like that. There's a lot of ways to rethink how policing is done. We've been in a rut. It's worked the same way for, you know, centuries, basically, in the United States. Um, But I think it's an opportune time to really rethink all of the uh, premises and the assumptions we make about policing and analyze them. One of the things I I think, and this has been on the growth for, you know, decades, but lately, last 10 years, it's gotten, I'd say, a lot lot. Um, call it worse or a lot more is the militarization of the police. You know, you have like MRAP troop carriers that were sur- surplus from the war, and these police, you know, 
departments have have like literal military equipment, and yeah. they, they sometimes they if you look like you're a military officer, if you look like military and you act like military and you you're armed like military, you're probably going to act like military. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and it's sort of a a chicken and the egg problem uh, as to you know police departments started militarizing uh, probably in the seventies and eighties. Certainly in the eighties, when I was on the department. Uh, that was a time when there was a lot more uh, drug-related serious violence where drug cartels were using machine guns mm-hmm. and the police were confronting those groups uh, on the street. So they kind of had to up their game in a sense and, and you know, match fire with fire. There was a famous thing in L.A. when the guy yeah. took the, hey, they had all those heavy-duty machine guns and the cops had to go to the gun store. Yeah, to yes. be able to fight. Remember the guys yeah. in the armor, and that was a shootout thing that was like, crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, and, uh, and 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 so I mean, I think you know the intentions may have been justified uh, as we started to militarize the police, but the unintended consequences, just like you said, you start looking like a military, you start training like a military, you start responding to citizens uh, as if you're an occupying military. And, and the funny thing is, you know, there was in the eighties there was the crime growth. Everybody was super predators, all these terms, everybody was freaking out, you know, we're all going to die from, and then the crime all of a sudden magically just went down. And it's still, it's still way down from what it was in the eighties. Um, yet we still have, you know, more people locked up. We have mil- 2 million, over 2 million people incarcerated in this country. A lot of them are for non- nonviolent drug possession. Yeah. Um, along with the reimagining the police comes the, you know, reimagining justice generally uh, and smart justice approaches. Uh, we sort of saw that here, you know, it gets, you know, SB 91, um, it, it got a very bad name because it came at a time when, you know, we were experiencing an up, uptick in crime that got blamed uh, on that mm-hmm. legislation and it was underfunded. I mean, the thing about moving to a smart justice sort of platform, uh, an improved uh, way to handle justice is it's going to cost you. You're not going to be able to save money. And make that transition. You're going to have to commit to spending more money on diversion programs and treatment programs and all sort of things. I, I, there's been so many um, frontline did a thing years ago. I'll never forget it. That was in Kentucky how they reformed a lot of their prison. But this guy, they tracked this guy. He got out of jail. Um, I think he was armed robbery. It was kind of a serious crime, but he got out, and they were kind of like, "Here's 80 bucks. Good luck." Wow. <laughs> By the way, be you know, be at your probation officer once a week. And I mean, they got a guy went back. Shock, you know, shockingly. I mean, oh, we, yeah. we all know he's going to go back. Yeah, the recidivism, recidivism rates uh, in the U.S. are, you know, just deplorable um, because there's not really much support, transition, assistance. And plus, you, you come out of a, especially if you have a felony conviction, you come out, you know, it's hard to get a good job I, in I, this I think economy anyway. But. I think it's very hard in general and probably specifically in this country to kind of convince taxpayers to say, hey, we have to invest in these people. Because the the and the alternative is is they go back and then it costs more money. I mean, it costs I think fifty to sixty to eighty, depending on the jail. You know, thousand dollars a year to house an inmate. Um, but this, the public just generally just I think cringes at you know, well screw them. We don't want fuck them. We're not going to you know give them any money or help them. But the reality is we, we're all better off if if we if we can um, help rehabilitate and then get people back into society. Yeah, I mean, I think the argument economically is there that it's actually cheaper if you can successfully do that instead of having this, you know, revolving door of people going in, committing crimes, getting in prison, getting out, committing crimes and doing all that. Because actually holding somebody in prison is is extremely expensive uh, in the long run, uh, and they're not producing anything. So, 
Yeah, it's hard to get your head around the idea that somebody commits a crime, hurts somebody, does something, steals something, and we're going to somehow reward them by mm-hmm. giving them these programs. And it's just you have to be able to sort of argue around that mindset. And you're a, you're a lawyer now. You're yeah. more you're more civil. You don't do much criminal, right? More no, civil. most civil. But I wanted to talk about you know. There's a lot of this talk about racial um, systemic kind of racial in the problems in the justice system. And I think that's a, th- a thing, mm-hmm. but I really think it's more class based. I mean, th- th- there's a racial element to that. I, I agree, but sure. you know, example, um, years ago, guy I knew he was drinking, he was white kid drinking and driving, got pulled over, got a DUI. Okay. Wealthy parents had, had, had some means, hired a lawyer, paid him 10, whatever it was, 10, 15 grand. They tested the, uh, calibration of the you know machine. It wasn't calibrated. It was a couple days a week. Right. It wasn't calibrated you know, a week late. Got off. Oh yeah, no. Th- know, there's th- no th- question that money uh, influences justice um, and always has. Um, OJ. I mean, you you, you, I you have enough money that. to get a super team of lawyers. I just watched that People versus. I just oh, recently yeah. rewatched that. It was great, great show. It is really good program. And uh, but you know, and, and that plays out all across the board. I mean, it's you know, not even in high profile cases like that. But yeah, poor people uh, don't get you know bailed out. They spend their pre-trial time generally in jails, which can be, you know, a, a life-altering event. Uh, and this is before they're found guilty of anything. Did you did you ever hear of Khalif Browder? Um, that's the, asked, the guy. Yeah, the, we the, talked the, about that before. Yeah, he, that was the guy that got. He's a kid in New York and, you know, the stop and frisk. And for the backpack. Went, for the backpack. Yeah. And he said he stole the backpack. He fit the, quote, fit the description, was arrested. Um, probably the strongest kid, I, I mean, person I've ever heard of. He wouldn't plead. I mean, because most of these things get pled out. Oh, absolutely. You know, most people don't go to court. They scare you. They, they threaten you. They, they say, you don't do this. You're going to go to jail for 50, you know, whatever they right. do. And he was stuck in Rikers. He couldn't bail out. His parents didn't have the mom didn't have the money. Couldn't mm-hmm. bail him out. He, he was in there for like two years. It was crazy. And, you know, in this two, and he wouldn't plead. He just refused to do it because he didn't do it. He didn't steal anything. And eventually, years later, they dropped the case. But the kid was so fucked up from being stuck in Rikers Island with like a hardcore criminal, oh, yeah. put in solitary. There's there's tapes. There's it's a whole like four part. Jay Z did a whole four part series on it on Netflix. But uh, he gets out, and you know, tra- tragically, not long after, he, he commits suicide. Yeah, because he was so screwed. I mean, imagine being in a place like that for as a 16, 17, 18 year old. Oh, the, the middle of your end of your development. Yeah, and. It's just so frustrating that that a lot of people, you know, have to go through that system of of not having the means or the money or the bail, um, especially when they didn't do anything. It's one thing if you if you're guilty, okay, well, you know, but there's a lot. It just it seems it's the the, the racial element is there, but I just I always think it's a lot more almost class based. Well, I think it's both, and I think if you overlap them, you have a real problem. So yeah, if, well, you're, if you're poor and you're white, you're going to do worse than if you're poor and you're rich, but if you're poor and you're black, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to have the hardest time of all. And I don't think there's any question about that. I think the data supports that, and I think our, our common sense supports that we know that's the notion. Why do you think that this is so well known? This is These are things that everybody kind of knows, mm-hmm. but they don't seem to really change all that much. <sighs> that's a good question. Whether well, Difficult to change, and I think because the we have very limited ability to constructively discuss those issues. Mm-hmm. Because once it comes up, everybody, you know, if if, if you start saying that you know uh, black people are getting a, a raw deal in the justice system, you'll get a lot of uh, white people will get defensive about it yeah. and think that it's somehow you know accusing them or they have to apologize for it. And we just have. Uh, 
just very poor ability uh, to have honest, vulnerable, uh, fact-based discussions about the issues w- with an end towards making it better. You know, when apartheid ended uh, in South Africa, Mandela and the guys he was with, um, they kind of quickly figured out there was almost a civil war. I mean, the, the blacks wanted to kill the whites and can't blame them for, for how they were you know, treated for a long time. But Mandela kind of realized that's not the way to move forward. And instead of retribution and score settling, it was more of putting the system on trial. This, and everybody acted within the system. Yeah. This is, I read his book, you know, Long Walk to Freedom. And, and it's um, when it becomes less about the people and more about the system, maybe that's a way to... Yeah, if, if you can structure the argument that way. And you need you need leadership that is going to be positive and constructive and able to c- convey to people why we're going through this uh, process and how good it's going to be in order, you know, in mm-hmm. doing it. Um, but right now, and, and for a long time, I'm not even just blaming the current system or the current people involved, um, the best politics is basically to divide people, make people afraid of things. Divide, divide and conquer. Yeah, I mean, fear sells better than anything, unfortunately, in politics. And we've seen it over and over and over again. Um, it is extremely rare anymore to have politicians who can try to improve things by inspiring people to do better, to challenge them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what we need. Um, and well, until we get that... It's going to be pretty hard sledding. Well, speaking of leadership, you know, a few weeks ago there was an assembly meeting. I'm sure you kind of were aware of it, but I was there to kind of, there was the anti-mask group. And it was really funny because there was the anti-mask people who were, I'd say, generally kind of on the right. Yeah. And there were 25 or 30 of them, not a great deal of people. But there was also a defund the police group protesting, you know, police. And they were, I'd say, to the left. But they were kind of all united against Ethan Berkowitz, because the people <laughs> on the right called him a fascist, and the people on the left called him a racist. Wow. And they were kind of all chummy. But I go in there, and at first I, I noticed there was two people lying on the ground in front of the dais there. And at first I couldn't tell because I was so far back. I don't know if they were part of the defund the police group or part of the anti-mask group. But then you could kind of see they were wearing masks, and then they were kind of part of the defund the police group. And there was a lot of the people that were there were protesting um, – Tragic event in February. This this young kid, sixteen year old, was pulled over. Five kids oh, yeah. in a car, and it was I think three or f- three thirty in the morning, and you know they were f- figuring out wh- whose car it was, all the stuff you do. And he was, I think, sleeping, or they couldn't wake him up. And then he and then he got up, and you could hear him say, "Don't reach for it." And he shoots. He shoots this sixteen year old kid. Shoots these cops and hits him in the vest. Mm-hmm. You know, it broke the actually shattered the badge, and you know shooting, and and they killed the guy. It's horrible. It's yeah, sad, it's, but the the Office of Special Prosecutions found found the act, cops to have acted within you know their their authority, and now there's a thing from his kind of friends and family saying that it's a, a you know act of police brutality and and it's uh you know they want to reopen the case and and some of the people testifying one one kid testified and very upset and he's he said he was the brother of the guy but mm-hmm. I mean in the middle of this it was just f this f that fuck this and it was. And you got people lying down, you got people cussing, you got call the mayor a bitch, you know, and I'm just thinking, no one's saying anything. And yeah. you were on the assembly, right? For three, three yeah. And were you there when Trainee was chair, I assume? Yeah. Trainee and, uh, I can't remember who else, somebody else was chair. Elvie okay. was chair too, yeah. El- Elvie's also no nonsense. I don't think yeah. Elvie would have, I don't think either Elvie or Dick would have. No, I don't said, think anybody hey, like, would. I mean, I, I, I'm surprised that 
that was allowed to go on. They were doing push-ups and, and they were just street. They were live streaming it. It was, you know, I mean, there's ways to protest. I just don't, my, my thing is, where does it stop? Like what's next? Are they going to stand behind the people on the assembly? Are they going to? Yeah, you have to, I mean, you, you, you want to allow people, you know, the, the right to peacefully protest. You know, we've seen what happens when you don't do that in, in certain circumstances. Um, but you also have, you, you know, the government has to conduct its business. You have to have meetings, you have to have assembly meetings, and they have to be able to be run in a, you know, a, a reasonable manner. And you can't allow a certain group to kind of disrupt things um, at the expense of everybody else. Um, there's a time and a place, and I think you have to run a meeting within, you know, rules of decorum. Um, you can, you know, hold up signs, do things, just all kind of ways of getting your message across but when it becomes disruptive and if it becomes you know you're yelling abuse at people uh it's incumbent on those running the meeting to to put an end to that yeah, it was i was there and it was just i was you know i, I remember even during the i don't know if you remember the ao 37 stuff years ago oh, yeah. I mean, that was very contentious but people were there a lot of people were there a lot of people were testifying angry oh, yeah. but it was you know, for yeah, the most part, whole, run pretty, you know, it was run like the way it should be run. We did the whole equal rights ordinance. That was mm-hmm. pretty heated and over more than one day. And, uh, you know, there was some wild, you know, testimony and, and discussions among the assembly and among the public. And uh, But it was within bounds. It was, you know, it was, it was intense at times and emotional. But, you know, people generally maintain the proper decorum. I guess the one, you know, the one side I talked to some people in the assembly, well, if, if we kick them out, it's going to create a you know, pro- bigger problem. I said, well, I wouldn't kick them out. I would just say, please have a seat or, you know, don't, don't g- interfere with, you may have to, I mean, if they don't, you know, you know, at some point, if you decide you have to stop it, I would just stop, the stop it. You have to do something. And they have security guards there for that very purpose. That, I think if it was me, I would just stop the meeting and say, until you guys decide to move, we're going to go ahead and, and then, <laughs> I don't know, then that, that gives them a veto on and shutting down your meeting. I mean, if you come guess, to assembly yeah. meeting, you're, you can be expected to behave in at least a, a normal, sort of a mature manner. You can protest, you can make a speech, you're given time at the podium, say your piece. Um, but if you, you're disruptive, I think, no, we have to, you know, allow the meeting to take place and we can't allow a, a you know, a small group to, you know, veto government action. It's kind of interesting the way our system works. I mean, the, the like the borough and Matsu and a lot of the other parts of Alaska, they have the kind of the mayor's part of the assembly. Yeah. And we're, we're have a deal where the assembly kind of is separate from the mayor. He has his own little area. He's over there, but he's quiet. Yeah. But, but he does have a role. He can speak if, yeah. Uh, or she can speak if, mm-hmm. if the assembly, um, asks them or can they just, do they have their own, I think they have they, their own time. Given time to, usually the mayor is given a time at the beginning of the meeting to make a report and, uh, always has the ability to, to weigh in during the meeting. And there's a veto, right? So what's the veto override? Eight? Eight to override right now. And I don't know. Yeah, I think it's still be eight even if they add the new assembly person. So That's right. That passed, right? Yeah. The, the, so that's going to be after redistricting the 12th. Yep. The 12th man. The right? 12th man, right. <laughs> 12th person now with the, the woke. You got to be careful with the woke culture. That's true. Have you heard this? This is. I thought this was a joke. I Some of the woke stuff is so um, preposterous to me that I, I don't know if it's real or not. Yes. And, and uh, there's one that's real that I thought was, I didn't understand it at first. Have you ever heard of the term Latinx? Yeah, I hear that a lot more now. That's sort of the becoming the... The, the gender you know, neutral... Uh, yeah, because it's you know, Latino or Latina. And so in order to avoid the whole assigning a gender to that term, the Latinx comes up a lot. So. Which is crazy because cause Spanish is a gendered language, like Russian, French, Italian, right. gendered languages. Well, so they, I have some friends, I grew up in New Mexico, and a lot of Hispanic people, and I mean, they just... They, they, they just one person told me this is a word white people made up because we, you know, we wouldn't. Sure, probably. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, you see that. I've been seeing that in the news a lot. A lot of newscasters will use that term thinking that is the appropriate, non-offensive way. It's just like, uh, I go back, I, I love Bill Maher. I watch him every week. And that he's sounds off, like it. You've mentioned off. him like three times already. Like, he, he, he says good because he says common. You have like a Bill Maher channel on your TV or what? I got the app, yeah. Okay. But he, he's, he's off till August, I guess. But um, a few weeks ago when he closed his, his um, kind of closing monologue, he, he talked about kind of this racism problem in this country mm-hmm. and we have to face it. But he said, when when white people are more bothered by racism than black people, um, that's a you know, problem. And as we talked about before, I think it's very interesting. You made a point in the, the unpublished podcast that mm-hmm. got mixed, mixed up. But this one, yeah. You made a good point that when you, and I kind of, I'm 35, so I've heard this when I was growing up, it was a thing. But I think it started much before I was born, the, the kind of idea of being colorblind. Yeah. That used to be a, a, a goal, right? We're yeah, that was just, yeah. I mean, you know, during the original civil rights era and through the 60s, you know, with Martin Luther King, the idea was, you know, a colorblind society was sort of what we were heading for, to, to judge people by the content of the character and not see the color of the skin and all, all of that. Um, and so people that, you know, white people in particular that were trying to, you know, be progressive and, and be a part and support the movement – um, you know, were gearing themselves to be colorblind. And that was supposedly laudatory that, you know, I don't know, I'm colorblind. I don't treat people differently. Um, and which was good. And it was all well and fine. But then, you know, we got to another level where we see that, well, you can't ignore some of the behind the scenes systemic issues that uh, if we treat everybody equally, uh, they didn't start out in the same place and they have other obstacles that they have to uh, overcome that, you know, white Americans may not. So just being colorblind all of a sudden was not really sufficient and actually becomes a detriment. It almost becomes an, an, a way to attack somebody when this is a problem. You know, you have people who might, might have a different experience growing up and they, they, they think something or say something that, that, you know, they aren't the enemy, they aren't a bad person, but they might just not understand kind of how things are changing. And this is where it's gone so crazy is, there's a guy that, you know, he was a, a older, I think he was in his 50s. He was like a sports caster, and um, he tweet, tweeted out, I don't even think he knew what he was saying, but what it meant was all lives matter. Yeah. He got fired. And clearly, the guy, I mean, if you look at the guy and, and look into it, the guy wasn't, he just didn't, he didn't know what that meant. He didn't understand the connotations of kind of black lives matter, all lives matter. And it, it just seems like we've become, we've lost the ability to have a nuanced discussion on a lot of these matters. It's like you're right or wrong, you're good or bad. Yeah, that's part of you know the, the divisive culture that we're in. That you know if you if you're not saying the exact right thing, all of a sudden the uh, the side that is offended by that is going to attribute all sorts of things to you. That you know if somebody says all lives matter, all of a sudden I have a mental picture of this guy who is sort of a closet racist and and uh, all these other things. When you know we don't give people the benefit of the doubt and we don't have the dialogue to say, well, you know. I understand you're saying all lives matter and, and certainly all lives matter, but you know the point of Black Lives Matter is because we're trying to point out a particular problem that Black uh, people are facing. And when you say all lives matter, um, it it's like you're denying mm-hmm. the Black Lives. I think matter. the analogy, the best analogy I ever heard was, you know, if there's if there's row of houses and one's on fire, you know, you 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 focus on the house that's on fire. Yeah, you, know, you don't worry about the one over here because yeah. it's not on fire. All houses are important, so yeah, we're, yeah. We're in this case, this house them. is important because yes. it's on fire. Yeah, I mean, and that's you know, I think that's a fair analogy, and I think you know, but you know, everybody that says, and it's back to that defensiveness. I mean, people say Black Lives Matter, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a whole lot of white people just get you know feel back on their heels about that, and I think they're being attacked because. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's a long educational process we have to go through. And it's got to start with people trying to see the best in other people and try to, instead of seeing the worst yeah. in them. Well, this goes to, to one of the biggest problems I, I think we have in society right now. You, you cannot live in a free society if people are afraid to, to say what they think or if people are afraid to speak out of fear of, oh, my gosh, if I don't say the right thing. So, so the, re- the reaction is um, they go and vote for people who they think are maybe going to – this is the silent majority with mm-hmm. Nick, Nixon and all the things. So my fear is, you know, in Soviet Union, for example, people were very scared to say much because yeah. it was like everybody was spying on everybody. Right. Now we're not spying, but it's like if, if, you get, if, you, if you're on Facebook, if there's a video or if, you, if somebody says something about something you said and you didn't even mean it the, the way it was, it was interpreted. Yeah. Um, it's just scary. And what, I think the reaction to a lot of this, and it's happening in Europe now, is is far right people, and not 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 the kind of far right, the woke left calls everybody everybody who they disagree with is far right, right. real far right. Yeah, I mean, scare anti immigration, nationalistic, fa- you know, almost fa- fa- fasc- fascists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where you could end up, and that's that's also very bad. Yeah, that's the pushback. I mean, you know, the you know. Tr- President Trump makes a lot of uh, political ground by being anti-politically correct, uh, just saying that term and, and being opposed to it because it gives a lot of people the impression. A lot of people are concerned about the political correctness movement, which is now sort of the woke movement and the cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. however it's you know referred to now. There's a lot of people put off because they feel like they can't you know say what they want to say without being criticized. Um, but, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking back, there is some value, and we just have to find the right blend, in making certain things you say unacceptable anymore. Oh, I, I, sure. And, I agree with that. And I mean, it's just a matter of figuring out in society where that correct line is. I, I think we can all, I think reasonable people can all agree on there's certain words and things you just shouldn't say. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, when I was a kid growing up, man, there was, you know, racist talk was rampant and nobody batted an eye. Mm-hmm. Now, black jokes and, and slurs and all that stuff would be said in an amazing uh, public way that now, you know, even it, it would, you'd, people would certainly I, be I totally agree. Ostracized. I mean, there's, there's things that are said in, you know, play company language that, that shouldn't be. But I think we, I, my fear is you've, you've gone so far past that yeah. where people are scared to say anything that could be cons- construed as controversial or insensitive and I mean you see you see this happen with people's some people genuinely bad people who do bad things but other people who you know might get mixed up and then it's like the job where they work what they do you know they're and yeah no it's and it prevents having that discussion that community discussion that you have to have that's the only thing that's going to make things better is if we can kind of air our laundry in an honest way say what it is that we're concerned about um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're having a discussion about Black Lives Matter, for instance, and you're a white person and, and, you, and somehow that phrase, you have a, a connotation of what that phrase means that you think is problematic, it's helpful if somehow in whatever form this is, you can say that, mm-hmm. explain it to people, and people can explain back why you may be wrong about that. Um, but we're at a point where, yeah, you have to be so careful about what you say, uh, left, right, or ever, that... People do shut down. They don't want to have that argument. They'll do it on Facebook sometimes, you know. Just, well, you, 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 I've noticed you're off the Facebook, but now you're on Twitter, which is yeah, a far worse place, Bill. Yeah, I'd probably be off Twitter, too. I, I, I Twitter is a weird, weird. I think they say something like, I've heard like 90% of Twitter co- content on Twitter is from like 10% of users. 
Oh yeah, I mean it's, it's a very weird echo chamber. Kind of, it doesn't represent the real world at all. Yeah, I put a couple things out on Twitter, and it hasn't met with good results. So oh yeah, it's, I don't, uh, I don't uh, know if I'll keep doing that. I, social media in general is just, I think, so. There's so many good points. I like staying in touch with a lot of people, but all the arguments and everybody having to prove everybody wrong and having to say exactly what they you know feel about things at all times, I just becomes just a huge time suck. Yeah, that there, too. There's positive elements to it, but there's also a lot of negative elements to it. Yeah. So uh, speaking of Twitter, last thing I want to talk about is there's this Captain Cook statue issue. That was my like, Twitter feed. Yeah, was your, that was yeah. You, you did a multi. You, you did a thread. At the thread, yeah, I was pretty good. Good I was, job. Bill. I was very surprised with myself being able to do that. That was challenging, but I got it done. Yeah, the one, two, three, yeah. the whole thing. Yep. So uh, this is an issue that I actually became aware of pretty much a month ago. I saw increasing amount of posts on social media about the Captain Cook statue. Um, coming down there were some calls to take it down like we've seen in you know different parts of the lower 48 um i'm i'm in the sister cities commission I'm the chair actually and mm-hmm. one of our sister cities is whitby england and that statue has kind of a connection to whitby and bp it was put there in 76 it was a gift from bp uh, to celebrate the bicentennial which is kind of ironic because we beat them you know that's right it's <laughs> kind of nice of them yeah. <laughs> thanks guys they weren't poor sports Got and it. then two years later whitby became a sister city captain cook actually learned to sail in whitby he was he was born poor, you know. Went went to become a sailor, became a brilliant cartographer. His maps were used for you know, many decades, wow. hundred years after he was killed. Um, but but it was put up there, and it's become an issue. You know, it's become a thing where we sent the sister cities commission sent a letter to the mayor and the assembly and um, basically said, look, we understand that like the statue itself doesn't paint the full picture. I mean, the Dena'ina people, the indigenous people, were here for a long time before that. Uh, Cook wasn't here very long, but I, I think it's, you know, my opinion, it's pretty incredible he came here. Mm-hmm. It's a far distance from England, and the maps he, you know, made were used for a long time. Um, his history isn't nearly as, as, as complicated as a Columbus or, right. you know, some of these people that were truly did horrible things. Um, he was an explorer. He definitely had some interactions with New Zealand and Hawaii. He was killed. Mm-hmm. But... Um, the statue was, was part of our history. You know, it was there for almost over 40 years. And then the mayor essentially kind of answered our letter and said they're going to turn the decision over to the village of uh, Klutna. <coughs> uh, Aaron Leggett, who's the president, is actually on the Sister Cities Commission. He's one of the commissioners. Okay. And two years ago, we had an uh, event to celebrate Whitby's 40th year anniversary of being a sister city. And, and Aaron wasn't on the commission at the time, but he actually spoke at it. We had Jim Barnett, a cook historian, and Aaron spoke about the indigenous uh, history and interaction with cook that's good good balance but now it's kind of i was just i saw yesterday a couple of days ago it was vandalized did you hear that no i didn't people hear were arrested uh, really I'm not sure two people looks like they they spray painted or did something on the, the base but i want to talk to you a little bit about the statue itself and mm-hmm. kind of i mean there was a meeting and there was some talk and you some articles people saying the way he's standing is he's dominating the land and the people and some some it was funny some white people had, had wanted to cede their time to indigenous voices, but then one guy just kept talking. Yeah. I want to cede my time, but I got yeah, a lot to say. But I got a lot to say. Yeah. And then like somebody else, a white person got f- physically ill when they, when they see the statue, <laughs> Probably other problems. But I mean, talk a little bit about what you think about the statue and kind of this effort by some to pull it down. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I certainly don't have any strong feelings about the statue itself. I mean, I, you know, I'm Irish and statutes dishonoring, you know, some 
random Brit doesn't, you know, do it for me. If it was gone, <laughs> I'd be just as happy. So I, I, I'm not really invested in, you know, whether there should be a Captain Cook statue or whether there shouldn't be a Captain Cook statue. Um, I think um, I was upset about the uh, the process the mayor used, the decision to uh, s- basically cede the decision to the uh, native village of Aklutna. Um, cause I think it sets a bad precedent and misses more than anything. It misses a good opportunity because the, you know, the Captain Cook statue, because of what you said, he, he's not a, a, you know, he's not a Confederate. He's not, uh, you know, uh, was an a explorer slave, slave, slave that was, in, yeah, there, he, he's certainly a lot, you know, he's from a different era and has, you know, obviously there's different values involved and, you know, he's, he can be seen as a symbol of, you know, uh, white European imperialism uh, if you want to. Um, but it's certainly a more nuanced type of issue, and it's a perfect one to have the discussion about how we uh, tend to our history, because uh, you have have the Alaska Native perspective of the Nina people here, and you know whether that statue in some way offends their history or you know diminishes it or overshadows it or whatever the the concern is. That's a good discussion to have. Um, uh, and we, we had the Sister Cities Commission essentially proposed that a, a roundtable of all the stakeholders yeah. to discuss discuss it. You know, and the first Alaskans and the, the village of Aklutna and the Cook Cook Society and all, you know the Parks Fund, all the Anchorage Park, all the people that were the mayor, the assembly, uh, everybody would have a, a voice. And that was what we what we kind of proposed as a, a good a good way to to do, talk about it. Yeah, I think that's the best way. I mean, I think in the long run, that is the the best way. Like you're talking about South Africa before, you have to have. For in order for controversy and, and conflict to work itself out in a society, you have to have reconciliation at some point. Uh, and, you know, discussions about the Cook statue, as unimportant as the Cook statue is, whether it's here or not, um, can be valuable in having that discussion and having sort of a reconciliation so that what is decided with respect to the Cook statue is our decision well, collectively. And, and I, I had said, and I, I, I believe... Uh, that's a huge area over there, Resolution Park. It, I mean, there's room for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. The, the the panorama uh, display, which shows the, you know, Point Warren's off and, and Mount Susitna, it's still set. It's still lists Mount McKinley. Yeah. So there's probably a lot of, um, a lot of restoration, updating yeah. that can be done over there. And that's what I had said. That's what I thought. Let's use this as an opportunity to update, to mm-hmm. add more history, to to maybe make make the place because you know even the the plaque on the stat it's been there forty some years. It's scratched and graffiti old and um and you know my, my concern is it's kind of gone from you know this nuance we talked about before having a nuanced discussion to you know it's like it must come down yeah um and then that's not good i mean I, I think you know there are certainly statutes that need to be removed i'm all in favor of removing confederate statutes wherever they might be those for are a funny lot of too reasons. because those didn't even come up until many many decades after the civil war lee, oh, yeah. robert e lee was against those you know he he, he didn't they didn't. It was a resurgence in the kind of thirties, and yeah, it was. And it was, you know, it was sort of a, a black backlash. It was a, against you know um, black independence, mm-hmm. and it was definitely a, a sort of a white supremacist background to the putting up of a lot of those statutes in, in certain towns. Um, but yeah, even if there wasn't that, I mean, it's just you know they're traitors to the country and slaveholders on top of it. I mean, there's just there is no good argument for those statutes. I don't think. Um, but when you get into people like Andrew Jackson, who are it was a slaveholder, and you know, 
you know, committed atrocities, um, but was also president and did these other things. Yeah, Jefferson too. I mean, Jefferson, yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's, that's the Declaration of Independence, you know, just a, you know, on its face, just a, a, an amazing document written by this guy who, you know, was a slaveholder and didn't even free his slaves, you know, at the end of his life, like, you know, some of them did, at least in the and an effort to try to uh, everyone's on the, everyone's on the dock. And it's weird in Oregon. They tore, I don't understand this. They tore, tore down a statue of a, of a, like a, a, a elk. Well, See that? You know, elks are a problem. I don't know, I understand that one. They burned it down. It was really bizarre. I don't understand what the, uh, yeah, it's he, just, yeah. Any, any, any kind of statue and any kind of, I guess in a way it's just like any statue that currently exists is a, is a fixture or a symbol or a symptom of, current culture or the dominant culture that's been in place. Mm-hmm. And so thus all of them are suspect. And, you know, for a long time, I mean, the, the, when the Soviet Union ended, a lot of the, there's still, some of them are still there, the Lenin stat, Stalin statues, mm-hmm. but a lot of those came down and Saddam Hussein that came down, remember? And, yeah, that's well, usually the first thing to do when you overthrow a government is take down their statues. <laughs> it's kind of, it's de rigueur. Um, it's still weird in Russia. I mean, I've been, spent a lot of time there and you still see these, even Stalin has a bus there and, you know, the Kremlin and all the Soviet premiers and all that and, um, leaders, but there's still like Lenin statue. You go to these towns in Russia, and there's still like a Lenin statue in the in the city town square. It's yeah, too much work to take them down. Sometimes <laughs> people take their pictures with them, but yeah, I think it's uh, the important thing is that you reconcile history in a way that threads everybody's kind of past history going forward. Uh, so we we determine what we're going to do with Captain Cook, and you know we put him in his proper place in history as far as Anchorage goes, as far as we value that today, and we decide how we're going to move forward. The thing, the thing we don't want to do, which I think some are pushing for, is we don't want to have a cultural revolution in this country, a, a, a Stalinist or a Maoist kind of eraser, erasure of history. You know, people taken out of the – people removed from pictures. People, things just totally removed that never happened. Right. We don't want that. And yeah, we don't want that. And I don't think anybody – I mean, taking down statutes doesn't – you know, that's one of the, I think, the misconceptions. People say you take down a statue, you're destroying our history. Well, you know, the history's still there with these statues. Well, I think I'm going further. I think there's a movement to kind of redefine or retell how things, and, and it's, it's good to tell the whole picture, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't change it to, well, to be something else that, you know, that it wasn't. Yeah, history is, you know, you, you would think that history is in the past, but the history is, uh, is never dead, and I think it, it, it continues to evolve as we learn more about it. And as we look at it from different perspectives. So history, I think, and the writing of history, um, as a history major. Me, uh, me, me too. Yeah, that's you know, the soft the soft studies. Um, I, tried, I tried engineering, and after one semester, I was like, nope. Yeah, that's a little, that's a little hard. This is me. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, history is always something that's involving, and we should always be working on understanding our history better. And I think it's really important. I think, you know, one of the, the worst things... Um, and I keep thinking about it in terms of leadership is that, you know, having people that don't understand history um, causes a lot of problems, which I think is currently no, the case. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I love history. I have a degree. I'm always reading books about, mm-hmm. I just finished a book about Nixon. I'm reading a book about Lincoln. I, I got actually another, it's kind of more recent history, but just, Char- Charlie Wilson, you know, the Congressman oh, Charlie Wilson. all these white guys you're reading about. I, I know. I got to. Well, I, yeah. I read the Mandela book, though. Oh, so that's that was, true. That was, a, that was a, his book. I've got was, an autographed copy of his book. Actually. Really? Yeah, it was one of my prized possessions. Yeah. That was one of my, um, that was one of those books, huge book. But sometimes you get a book like that and you just can't put it down. Yeah. That was one of those. Another one, one 
um, more close to home is uh, Mike Gordon's book, Learning the Ropes. Oh, okay, yeah. Another very shorter shorter book, but just fascinating history of Anchorage and his history and Coots and the pipeline. And I mean, should, I've had him on the podcast three three times. Wow, interesting so you, guy. You yeah. got to get one more to tie tie Mike. Okay, we can do this tomorrow again. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah, hopefully, this one we aren't going to have any audio. We'll just make daily podcasts. We'll just do this in the, the daily with Bill Evans. Yeah, yeah, we could. We can discuss whatever the hot issues are. Today. The, this is a thing that I, people like, the podcast, mine's been growing a lot, and I can see kind of the downloads. And I hear from people a lot who tell me, the most common thing they say is, I just love hearing from legislators or whoever they are, candidates. I just love having the ability to really hear them talk about things. Instead of this one-minute, you know, yeah, debate, two-minute thing that you, you have no idea what they even really mean or think. Yeah, I think this is a much more valuable forum for people to, uh, for candidates anyway, to decide if they like this person or they support this person you go to these debates supposedly that we have you know we're going to have for this mayor the, thing the, the paddles yeah, you put a paddle up yes or no or you get one minute to describe you know you know what you know what's wrong with anchorage and uh, or what's right with anchorage and it's just uh, they're very you know it's part of that sound bite culture the, the best the best part about the podcast i mean there's radio which a lot of folks go on radio but you know you have to kind of listen to it when it happens some of the radios have shows have the podcast but mm-hmm. with the podcast with the individuals in like long, long form, you just put it up there and yeah. people can go back and listen to it, you know, whenever they want. And, and you can apparently drop the F bomb, which, what, which I wasn't well, sure how, what the rules were, but I, I, no, you can say whatever the fuck you want here on okay. this. Cause this is internet radio. This is not okay. FCC regulated. So gotcha. by the way, just keep, if I'd have known, can we do this over? Cause I'd really, I'd spice it up a lot more. You want to use, use some four letter words, dams and oh, shoots care, and care, things like that. Careful bill. We're yeah. gonna, yesterday I did a podcast to hear by the time i post this so that one will be up so i did a podcast with two uh dancers from the bush company wow we talked about well, this is gonna be a big letdown a lot, lot more racy than this podcast <laughs> yeah, but we think. talked about kind of a dancing in the era of covid and many other kind of that stripper does sound interesting topics yeah. it, it, changing their industry quite a bit yeah and like all of them so. they, they say they have to do a lot more mascara now because of the mask <laughs> they told me that i mean i <laughs> I, I, I gotta believe them i don't imagine you're a you're a frequenter of the Bush Company. No, I'm, I'm I, guessing no. I <laughs> I've, I've stopped by. I'll be honest. I've no, I think that <laughs> great business. You know, you got to support local business. That's a good idea. Um, well, anyways, it's been great having you on, um, Bill Evans. And you have a website, or do you have Facebook page? Or uh, the... we, we've we've taken down our website. We're retooling it okay. uh, during this nice COVID break, and uh, it should be back up again in a couple of weeks. I'll shoot you the email for okay, it. Okay, great. So, um, like I said, I think the mayoral race will really kick off probably early next year. Is yeah, there'll be some things between now and then, but it, the real focus is going to be on people aren't going to really focus on it until I think after the what's what's the runoff forty forty five to avoid a runoff. Yeah, to used, to, used, to, used to be fifty, right? Used to be, yeah. Then they so, changed that. So if somebody gets if you get forty five or somebody gets forty five, then they they, they become the mayor and no runoff. Yeah. If nobody gets forty five, the top two. Yep. Um, I think. I mean, I can't even remember. Have we ever had a? I'm not trying to remember if we've had a non. Runoff. I mean, in fifteen, there was an Ethan. Uh, uh, well, last Amy year, thing. last year there was no. Last time there was no runoff when uh, Rebecca went up against. There was, was just I, kind of two of them. Anyways. Yeah, it was mostly just two. So it was, I think uh, Ethan won on the first go around on that one. Because uh, this one will be like fifteen, similar where there's going to be three or four. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of candidates because it's an open seat. So yeah, I expect that uh, more than likely it'll be a runoff. I think the uh, mayor would be more more fun for you than the assembly, huh? I think so. Yeah, I, I, I feel that uh, an executive uh, position is better suited Don't to my if personality. You, if, if you need a PR or comms guy, I know a guy. Okay. I'll, You're looking at him. <laughs> that would be interesting. 
Okay, Bill, well, I really appreciate coming on. Um, great discussion, and we'll do it again. Sounds good, Jeff. Okay. Take care. Folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.